This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the morning after the night before, and at this hour, Democrats are looking likely to lose the House of Representatives, not guaranteed. And if they do, uh, the margin seems to be very, very slim. If their luck holds, Democrats look set to keep hold of the Senate, not least because they gained a Senate seat after John Fetterman beat the odds and defeated Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. All very provisional hedged and contingent because obviously results are still coming in even as we speak to you 12 hours after our last podcast. So where does all this leave Democrats and Republicans as 2024 looms? Is this perhaps the turning point for Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party? And does everyone owe Joe Biden an apology? I'm Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland, and this is a special edition of Politics Weekly America. The word is that Donald Trump is said to be furious with how his hand-picked candidates performed last night. A lot of them did very badly. But Republicans can be happy with the wipeout they inflicted in Florida and the fact that they are still in the hunt for Senate seats in Georgia and in Nevada and for the governor's race in Arizona. And if they were to win those two Senate seats, they would actually take control of the Senate on top of what we're expecting to be a very narrow win in the House. So I'm in a studio in Washington, D.C. Alongside me is my colleague, the senior political reporter for Guardian U.S., Lauren Gambino. Hi, Lauren. Hello. And on the line, Tara Setmeyer, who is a former communications director for a Republican member of Congress. Hi, Tara. Hello. And completing our panel of wise gurus, David Shaw, political analyst and strategist sought out by Democrats. Hi, David Shaw. Hey. Good to have you all with us. Let's start off with this assumption, and I've you know hedged it carefully because we still don't know. But if the Republicans do win the House of Representatives, even if it's narrow, Tara my what do you think they then do with it? Well, I have to say that many of us in the punditry class did not expect the election results to be as close, given the historical headwinds facing the Democrats, as it has ultimately become. Um, I, as someone who works very hard on defending democracy, working with the Lincoln Project and and others who are were very concerned about the direction the Republican Party was going in, 
and the type of candidates, almost 300 of them who were election deniers on the ballot across the country, we were very concerned about the direction of the political wins here with Republicans potentially winning in in offices that could impact our future elections. So far, it looks as though democracy had a great night. Although Democrats uh, may still continue to lose the House, that slim majority is not necessarily a blessing for Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans who want to appear as though they'd like to govern. We really don't know what the Republican agenda is outside of investigations endlessly against Hunter Biden or impeaching Joe Biden. Um, They didn't really present their their full agenda of how they would combat economic issues and and other, other issues that are important to the American people. Tara, let me just jump in on that very specific thing about investigations, because you're absolutely yes. right. People anticipated that when they were assuming a big Republican night and big Republican wins. Is it as you're somebody who has worked for the Republican Party on Capitol Hill back in the day? Is it your guess that even if they squeak it really two or three, a handful of seats, even in that situation, do you think they would still use the power of being the majority party in the House controlling it? to have those hearings and investigations and to go gunning for Joe Biden and Democrats? Or would they think, you know, we didn't get such a big mandate. Let's hold back. I think this is the dilemma. The MAGA wing of the Republican Party will demand this. That's why the slim majority is so problematic for Kevin McCarthy's hopes of being speaker. I have said for quite some time that I don't believe Kevin McCarthy will ever be the speaker of the House because of the influence of the MAGA portion of the party. They run it. There's a reason why Kevin McCarthy, when he announced the commitment to America, he had Marjorie Taylor Greene standing next to him on the stage. She's the extremely far right congresswoman from Georgia. And she represents a uh, contingent, uh, a large contingent, large enough to be disruptive in the House that they I think Kevin McCarthy would have to make considerable concessions if he thinks he's going to win the speakership in order to get them to vote for him, which would be guaranteeing investigations or uh, into Hunter and, and and Joe Biden and others in the Biden administration, because that's what the MAGA world wants. So, no, I, I don't see them actually governing effectively because he cannot control the MAGA wing of the party. Uh, we've had Hatara on uh, the Republicans. David must bring you in on the Democrats. As Tara said, expectations were for something very different, for a big red wave. Democrats were quoted in all uh, the papers and all and everywhere else saying they were bracing themselves as if a hurricane was coming. First of all, tell us if, if you share in that surprise or if you perhaps were, were, were expecting something more like this. And what's your account for why it happened the way it happened? Well, you know, I think what I'll say is that if you compare to the public polls, this is something of a surprise, but not really that inconsistent with what aggregators were saying. You know, what has happened is that in the past week before the election, a lot of people put out very conservative polls. Um, I think uh, a lot of pollsters were very nervous and doing what they can to, you know, lower their numbers. But I think while this is a surprise, I don't think that this is out of the ordinary. I think just to deconstruct what happened, I think the most interesting part of this is if you look at the data, both the early vote data, the uh, exit polls, and also just looking at the some county level election results, it's really clear that this was not a turnout story. 
Republic, the 2022 electorate, from what we can tell, and to be clear, it's still early in our country. It takes a long time to count votes. Um, it really seems like Republicans turned out at a considerably higher rate than Democrats. This was an electorate where more people identified as Republican than Democratic, than Democrat. And yet Democratic candidates won anyway, because they were able to persuade independents and persuade Republicans to actually vote for them. And I, I think that, that that's the super interesting story of the cycle, at least from what we can see so far. No, that's completely fascinating. Well, I, I'm bound to put this to you. We had um, Chris Scott on the podcast 12 hours ago from the uh, progressive wing of the party. And he suggested this was a good night specifically for progressives. It was because the candidates from the left, he thought he made a case that they had flourished more. And then he held up the example that's of Tim Ryan in Ohio being on the other side of that argument and losing out to J.D. Vance there. You've explained on this podcast before uh, and and made you know a big impact in the Democratic Party for making a different kind of case, saying that Democrats needed to uh, shed some of those, and it's a crude shorthand, but some of those sort of woke culture war issues in, and to tack f- further towards the centre if they were to, to win. Within that argument, what do you think last night's evidence tells you? You know, I I think that the Democratic Party this cycle really ran on the right things. They ran good ads. If you actually go and listen to any speeches by Democratic candidates or watch any ads that candidates like Fetterman put on, they talked about uh, abortion. They talked about jobs. They talked about cost of living. There was really an incredible amount of message discipline this cycle. And that was also followed up with you know, large amounts of money. Democrats heavily outspent Republicans in governor's races and also, you know, to a similar extent in Senate races as well. Uh, And the ads that they put on were about the right subjects. I think even if you look at candidates, you know, with a left-wing history, um, like Fetterman, they, he was very clear in saying that he didn't support defund the police. There were actually tons uh, of of candidates who, uh, in swing states, who put out candidates, uh, ads, uh, that made that clear. And when it came to what they actually said to voters, they focused on the issues that people agreed with them on, which was, you know, abortion and uh, health care and other bread and butter issues that people care about. Because that's always been your message. Democrats should talk about issues where people agree with them. And so you're saying they did that there. Just just on that point, Lauren um, Gambino, sitting next to me here in Washington, D.C., when people thought this was going to go very badly for Democrats, when it was the pre-mortem, uh, because in the end, it doesn't need to be a post-mortem, they were saying, maybe we made a mistake talking about stuff like abortion and the threat to democracy. Maybe we needed to go much harder on bread and butter issues about the economy, etc., is it your sense that actually going on those other things, you know, the president making a big speech about democracy just a few days ago in the final stretch of the campaign, maybe that worked? There are definitely signs that um, voters were furious over uh, the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, we even saw in reliably read Kentucky uh, a decision um, to protect abortion rights there or or to vote against an initiative to roll back abortion rights. Because there was a kind of referendum in Kentucky, a ballot initiative that was specifically on abortion. Exactly. We also saw, I mean, I think if you look at Michigan, that's probably the best case. Michigan, just up and down the ballots. Democrats won. They even surprised themselves by taking control of the state Senate and House. So, you know, trifecta because they also won the governorship and their abortion was on the ballot, uh, the right to enshrine abortion rights in their constitution. And so clearly this was an issue that brought 
people out and brought people out for Democrats. Um, I also think, uh, you know, we still have some key races where very high profile you know, election deniers, as as we call them, are, you know, in the running still, Arizona being a key a place to look for that in the governor's race. Carrie Lake is only trailing by just less than a, a percentage point. And she is a big time election denier. The people look, she's like a sort of Trump figure, isn't she? She's a very Trumpian figure, you know, has been talked about as maybe potentially even a running mate for Trump in 2024. Um, and she is someone who has said, she, you know, wouldn't say whether she would accept the results of this year's election. But when you look broadly, you look at Pennsylvania, the governor's race there, I think, you know, some where, where the Democrat beat back a, a really, really extreme sort of Christian nationalist election denier who was at the Capitol on January 6th. I do think you see a thread of, of election deniers being uh, beat back. And I think you'll see from the White House a sense of you know, vindication that they said multiple times democracy is on the ballot. They argued that. And I think they will take from these results um, that people rose to the occasion. So, Tara, just on the, the I mean, that almost uh, back of the envelope analysis would say this was a year that Republicans should have won by the laws of normal political gravity because it's a midterm election and the incumbent party normally loses. Economy's in a bad state. Everything would have said Republicans would win. But it was because of those positions on abortion and on democracy that somehow what would the normal laws of political gra gravity were suspended and either prevented Republicans winning or actually in some cases allowed Democrats to win. Uh, absolutely. You know, I've been in politics a long time and candidate quality matters. And it's pretty remarkable that given the political headwinds and history, as you mentioned, where a sitting party has only gained seats three times in the last 80 years, that a sitting party with a president that's in the low 40s in popularity with inflation where it is, that they would not have an overwhelming majority in, in at least the House. That, that didn't happen this time. And a lot of that I will attribute to the fact that although he was not on the ballot, Donald Trump was very much front and center in the minds of voters, I believe, looking at the reminded of the chaos and of the um, out of step positions that a lot of his endorsed candidates were taking. And I think also the we cannot understate the absolute earthquake, political earthquake that the Dobbs decision created in this country. That never in the history of America has a right been taken away. And that's what happened with the overturning of Roe Ro v. Wade. And it mobilized younger voters, Gen Z voters, and women across the political spectrum as we continue to look at and analyze the numbers of turnout in turnout. I think you're going to see in the suburban districts, swing districts, that that that, that women will be will have been the difference, suburban women, because they did not feel that the Republican position on abortion was something that was palatable. Right. I'm going to come back into you in a second, Tara, about what the implications are of that for Trump in sp uh, specifically and whether or not there's such a sort of Trump albatross now that whether they're going to have to somehow cast him off. I want to come back to that. But just before we do, David, if you buy this, my back of the envelope point there, that it's basically abortion rights and the democratic threat that allow Democrats either to advance or at least to hold back the wave this time. What does that mean for a sort of, as it were, permanent or ongoing strategy? I can see how it worked this one time, uh, November 2022. But you're somebody who's thinking deep into the future about how the, where the Democrats should be positioned. 
there isn't a sort of long-term strategy here for Democrats, or is there? You know, I, I think that the Dobbs decision absolutely was instrumental in uh, this election result. You know, what we something that we tra- we track is just what party do you trust more on various different issues? And, you know, what you generally see is people trust Democrats on health care. They trust Republicans on crime and immigration. And abortion really up until very recently was a pretty neutral uh, issue for Democrats. That didn't mean it was bad, but it wasn't necessarily like a vote getter in most of the country. But after the Dobbs decision, it, abortion shifted from being, you know, basically average of the 33 message, uh, issues that we tested to becoming basically the single best issue for Democrats. And the extent to which voters cared about abortion also skyrocketed. Uh, out of the 33 message, uh, issue areas that we track, abortion went from being the 30th out of 33 most important issue to being like the 12th, basically overnight. I think when it comes to democracy, the story is unfortunately a bit more complex. You know, I, every time that we've done testing, um, whether it's on ads or whether it's on talking points, you know, a lot of democratic rhetoric on democracy, even though I personally think it's a very important issue, kind of falls flat. I think, you know, a lot of this depends on what the Republican Party decides to do. I'm I'm not an expert on intra-GOP politics, but something that I find very interesting is that both Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, in contrast to basically every other well-known Republican in the country, have actually staked a relatively moderate stance on abortion, at least relative to other Republicans. And I I personally find it interesting and puzzling that, you know, Republican activists haven't haven't pummeled them for this or haven't attacked them. And I I think the big question is, is the GOP going to continue to take these very unpopular stances or are they going to change course in response to these elections? And, you know, that's something that's just hard to know. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's what we'll, right, well let, let's hear, let's, I, I, I think that is the fascinating question. Do they in some way pull back in the light of these results? And I hadn't picked up that very interesting specific about Ron DeSantis on abortion. Let's just hear you first on that question, whether the Republicans pull back, Lauren, and then I want to hear you on it, Tara, as somebody who has obviously lived and breathed and worked with Republicans on just these sorts of issues. Lauren first. Um, thank you. I, yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting point. And we saw a lot of the candidates who staked out the furthest sort of most extreme uh, positions on abortion, like I already mentioned in Pennsylvania, the governor's race, Doug Mastriano, people who called for, you know, no exceptions uh, to the to abortion bans, even in cases of rape, incest, uh, life of the mother. Um, these kind of Republicans just did not do well. Uh, again, in, in Michigan, the governor's race there, the Republicans similarly staked out really extreme positions on abortion. And she uh, obviously lost. And so I think, yeah, that's clearly a central issue. Uh, Democrats clearly have the advantage um, on this issue and perhaps they can keep pushing it. But it will definitely be something to monitor as we get towards 2024. I was also thinking uh, something that David said, you know, a lot of Democrats will say they recognize that talking about democracy itself isn't possibly the most motivating issue. But when you connect it, but when you emphasize it in terms of extremism, uh, in terms of your opponent's, you know, extremism, you could even tie that to abortion, which many of them tried to do when you can point out that you're the candidate you're running against um, is just far outside the mainstream. That is a that is a way to sort of emphasize the point, even if the idea of democracy is a bit vague for some voters. Tara, I did pick up, it may, it may be you know, setting the bar far too low, but a slight sign that maybe Republicans got this message in the fact that two or three, even of these election-denying candidates, did concede 
defeat. And so uh, Baldock in New Hampshire did it quite gracelessly, but he did say, yes, Maggie Hassan for the Democrats uh, has won this contest. And I wondered if that was just the first sign. I know, you know, one... Uh, swallow does not a spring or summer make, etc. But I wonder if this was the first sign of what David was talking about, of of Republicans sort of getting the message and thinking uh, we are going to have to shift a little bit away from the far edges of Trumpism. You have obviously worked with the people who will be making these decisions. What do you think? Do you think there comes a sort of ideological cooling down among Republicans as a result of the of, of this night of results? You know, one often says that political parties do not course correct until they lose power. And this may be the potential opportunity for Republicans to finally look at how much Donald Trump has cost them since he won in 2016. That was the last of it. And so you already see the circular firing squads starting with between the MAGA wing and the gentry Republicans. And even though you had a, a handful of the election deniers who decided to concede, well, mainly because the elections were so far out of reach for them at that point, they couldn't question the results, where it's a bit closer, which is where it becomes more problematic in places like Arizona, we're not seeing concession is Ron DeSantis and his overwhelming win in Florida the answer for them finally? Some establishment Republicans may think the answer to that is yes. I think that they really have no idea whether Ron DeSantis can withstand a full-on, full-frontal attack by Donald Trump. Many other more formidable Republicans have withered at the full-frontal attack of Donald Trump than Ron DeSantis. So that internecine warfare is something to keep an eye on, and it's already developing. Just pay attention to the different Republican right-wing media ecosystem and see how they're framing this. Yeah, Democrats will be getting the popcorn out for this. I know. I, I, I just have to. I have to pick you. Up. I just have to put to you one thing because I thought it might be you may be able to shed some light on this. You're absolutely right. This battle is about to be joined: Trump versus DeSantis. And you could see even in the campaign, Trump obviously can't stand Ron DeSantis. He called him Ron De Sanctimonious in a rally rally in uh, Latrobe, Pennsylvania, that where I was in the crowd watching him. Uh, but he threatened him, saying, "Look, if he did run, I will tell you things about him that won't be very flattering. I know more about." About him than anybody other, anybody else than perhaps his wife, who is really running his campaign. So uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be feeling very strong. A lot of people are going to be looking at him, that massive win he racked up in Florida. But do you have any sense of what Donald Trump has got in mind? Is he just being, is he bluffing? Or is there something, is there something skeletal in the cupboard that Ron DeSantis has to worry about that Donald Trump knows about? Oh, he's not bluffing. Ron DeSantis does have things to worry about. And those, all of those skeletons come out of the closet when you run for president. And I can tell you right now that for the last year or so, as more and more rumblings of a Ron DeSantis challenge to, to Donald Trump became audible, uh, they've been preparing to take him out. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Whether he can withstand that once he's under the full lights of of scrutiny coming from Trump world, which it has no problems going after people, no shame whatsoever. We've already seen this. I'm not so sure that DeSantis can withstand that. Whether, whether the field is cleared for Donald Trump is uh, up in the air at this point now because they didn't get the red wave. He's poised to announce on the 15th 
reports are that the inner circle is asking him, maybe you should delay that. And he's he's pushing back very, quite angrily, saying that would make him look weak and wounded if he did so. So this is something to keep an eye on. It's developing. Very much. David, on the Democratic side of the line, there were lots of Democrats who thought if there is, I'm going to mix my meteorological metaphors here, if there is a red wave, then the, 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 that thundercloud of defeat would have at least a silver lining for Democrats because it would enable them to say what is in some ways the unsayable, which is to Joe Biden, look, you're going to turn 80, uh, you would be 82, um, you know, for the next election. Maybe it's time to think about someone else. From your, because you talk to voters, you do focus grouping, you do, you study the numbers. Biden's people in the White House are using the word vindicated about these results. Where do you think he stands? What would be best for Democrats going into 2024 to run with the man who pulled off this surprise success or to pass the torch to a next generation? What are the numbers saying as you see it? You know, what I would say, stepping back, probably it's always hard to know who the most electable person is, especially in a presidential race. But there are certain fundamentals, which is that incumbency is incredibly valuable. You know, one of the big reasons why Democrats were, have been able to do as well as they have in both the Senate and the House in our leaning districts is because voters knew who they were, even if, you know, six months ago, their favorability ratings might not have been very good. There's definitely a case that it would make sense to avoid a bruising trillion dollar primary where all of the smartest minds in the Democratic Party devote themselves into driving the favorables down of all of our favorite candidates. And so from that perspective, I think a lot of folks, a lot of insiders are kind of rooting for there to not be a big bruising primary. The one empirical point I'll make is that there's been something very different about the Biden presidency than the Trump presidency or even the Obama presidency, which is that, you know, the traditional, the traditional pattern of American politics was that there was this really strong relationship between economic conditions and presidential approval. And, you know, that was true for Clinton, it was true for Bush, but it stopped being true for Barack Obama and for uh, Donald Trump, but it's come back for Joe Biden. And so I think ultimately the question of 2024 is really just what the economy ends up being. And it's not, see, because I would have thought that almost regardless of all the other indicators, and I'm sorry to be just brutal, but just Biden's age would be a, an almost decisive fact. I see that the exit polling did uh, uh, voters as they came out from voting yesterday when I asked other questions said one of them was that they didn't think Joe Biden should run again. I think that was something even among people who are well disposed to the Democrats. Lauren, for you talk to people on all sides in this, well, what is the feeling about Joe Biden running again now? It would, for all the reasons David said, it will now, I think if he wants to, he'll be able to, there won't be pressure on him because he's come out of this something of a winner. But what do you think? What do you hear? You know, if you look at his approvals uh, within the Democratic Party, he he still has support. He definitely has support. And um, I think at least in the past few months, it does seem like there's been a shift towards uh, accepting or preparing for a Biden re-election campaign uh, among, you know, Democratic strategists. Um, there seems less of an appetite to have someone else run for all the reasons uh, David just laid out, because it would be messy, because they're hoping Republicans are the ones that everyone, you know, that have the messy primary that everyone's glued to. It's also not clear who would be the obvious successor. You you think that it might be Vice President Kamala Harris, but, um, you know, there's just a lot of questions about who would be the obvious uh, alternative to Joe Biden. But 
age is certainly a factor. If he were to end up running against someone like Ron DeSantis, who, you know, just by comparison, you'd see them on stage. Ron DeSantis is much younger. Um, I mean, this election cycle was so volatile. So much happened in just, you know, like 18 months that I couldn't even begin to predict all of the factors that would influence 2024. So, so, you know, who knows what that fight would look like between Biden and Trump or Biden and DeSantis or another Democrat and either of them or anyone really. Uh, There's just, it's a very volatile time, I think, um, in American politics, as we've just seen. It absolutely is. Tara Setmeyer, I know we're going to have to lose you in a second, but before we do, uh, I know you probably are not often advising Republicans these days, but if you were, What would be your advice to them in the light of these results? Well, my advice to Republicans uh, is consistent. It's stop with the, it was stop hitching your wagon to people who are unqualified to run for office, for people who are dangerous to democracy and who are willing to engage in illiberal extrajudicial, unconstitutional means to maintain power. That was never the Republican brand until Donald Trump came into into play. And what they have sacrificed has cost them greatly as far as um, reputation, as far as the, the democracy and, and the stability in this country, political violence. I mean, it has not been a positive path for them. So um, if they if there's any opportunity to to course correct and rehabilitate the Republican Party brand, now is the time to do that and fully reject MAGA. They're not going to listen. <laughs> and, and it's uh, it's clear that um, the malignancy of Trumpism has infected the party. And I'm not quite sure that they have the leadership and the wherewithal to actually beat it back. But we'll see. Same question for you, David Shaw. If you're advising, and I know you do, Democrats and Democratic candidates, what's your advice to them based on what we've seen these last 24 hours? Uh, You know, what I would just say is that Uh, Democrats showed an enormous amount of discipline uh, this cycle in talking about things that people cared about, capitalizing on the mistakes that Republicans made, and keeping the conversation uh, on issues that folks agree with us on. And I think the simple answer is that we have to keep doing that and make sure that we continue to nominate good candidates and uh, not get distracted. And I, I think that it's as simple as that. Lauren, a closing thought from you. What's your big takeaway? I know there's so many, but one big takeaway from these remarkable 24 hours. Well, I'm just going forward. I'm really curious to see how, you know, Kevin McCarthy or perhaps another Republican leader who might emerge as as the House Speaker. uh, I'm just curious to see what they propose as a governing agenda, if they try to govern. Because I think, um, I, I think maybe David mentioned this, but if if we see just a slew of investigations and, you know, a lot of attacks on Biden that don't seem to address the very real problems that we have in this country, that could set Joe Biden up for a pretty easy contrast in 2024. He could come out saying, look, you gave them power and look what they did with it. Absolutely nothing. Um, And so, you know, at least with two years in office, the Democrats have notched some legislative achievements and including some bipartisan wins. So I think, you know, if they really try to just sort of double down on the the MAGA wing and double down on uh, on the investigations and the attacks on Biden, maybe Biden comes out the victor. 
You know, I heard one expert today saying that midterms are a notoriously bad predictor of the following presidential election. People who have lost, like Obama or Clinton, uh, have then gone on to win presidential elections. But I hadn't thought of this, that even people who've done quite well in midterms, Jimmy Carter did quite well, George Herbert Walker Bush did quite well, then went on to lose. So uh, it's not guaranteed at all that this relatively good night for Democrats necessarily portends uh, a triumph in 2024. Thank you all so much for your expert view, even though I think between us there's probably only about four or five hours sleep in this sleep-deprived state. My thanks to Lauren Gambino, Tara Setmeyer and David Shaw. This brings to an end our special midterm election coverage. We do, of course, still have Georgia to look out for. That could be a runoff, which will keep us busy right into December. And there will be lots of other races still not yet decided to talk about and pick over uh, next week. Our thanks to the producer, Daniel Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. I will be back with Politics Weekly America next Friday, November the 18th. But thank you, as always, for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.